Farmers today are facing rising costs, volatile markets, and extreme weather. The Better Way to Farm podcast digs into strategies to help you take control of farm inputs and maximize profit so your farm can thrive for generations. Remember to take advantage of our free resources at abetterwaytofarm.com. Now, from America's Heartland, here's your host. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. We are so glad that you are here. Today, we're doing something a little bit different and sharing our most recent webinar that we did last week where we covered the complete guide to reading your soil test. The response we had was overwhelming from the 200 attendees who joined us live. From time to time during the presentation, there are references made to things that were on the screen. If you'd like to watch the presentation, you can find the link in the show notes below or by texting the word REPLAY to 641-919-5570. So without further ado, let's get right into it. We are very, very, very excited about what we're going to do tonight. We've spent a long time studying and working hard on this, working diligently. We've had the honor of working with some of you who are on the call. Some of you are brand new friends we've never met, and we look forward to getting to know you too. We're not here to have an argument. We're not here to put anybody down. We're not here to try and get you to do something different. We're just going to give you the information, the best information that we have as we believe it to be based on the last 31 years. And I have enough people who are helping me on here. I can assure you we have about 150 years worth of experience. And I tell people commonly that there are people that say they have 40 years of experience. But what they have is the exact same experience 40 times in a row. This group of people is out working diligently every day, learning new things, working hard. And so it's not the same experience 150 times. It's 150 years of different experiences and hard work. At this point in time, we're going to go into presentation mode and we'll start some screen sharing here and and talk about some things that we've got lined up from that standpoint. And then in the middle of this, I've got some just background that I want to cover. I am really looking forward to tonight. You know, what we're looking at here is the guide to read your soil test. And what we're looking for, we want to see that we find those secrets that you can unlock that potential that your soil has and get the most out of it, the most yield and the most profit. And I know we have people on here from literally all over the United States. We have people who have irrigation. We have people who don't. We have people who could grow 350 bushel, 400 bushel corn. And then we've got people on here that if they get to 150, that's a big deal because of where they're at geographically. And they can make a lot of money based on the lower input costs and lower land. So our goal, get the most out of every acre that you have. As we launch forward here to the next slide, we are anxiously thinking about what makes the complete soil test. Why is it? Why is it so critical that we have to have that complete test? And what is it that makes that? We're also promised you we're going to talk about the two readings that will tell you if you can or cannot apply nutrients in the seed trench. And we're going to talk about two different things with calcium. I had a very interesting conversation today, and this is a new add to the program. But we want to talk about why pH doesn't show us that total picture. But we also wanted to talk about why calcium isn't always the only answer to pH. We're going to be talking about those ratios that you need to be looking at. I'm going to talk about some that a lot of others talk about. I'm also going to talk about some that are not necessarily well known. And it's those ones that are lesser known that are actually 
the problematic ones because no one's taking advantage of it and there's a lot of yield being lost. So let's jump right into this. I would like to point out, and Karen would really appreciate it, guys. If you have any questions, please drop them in the chat. A member of our team will be reaching out to you or we will do a separate recording to make sure that all those questions get answered. But we want you to go ahead and and drop them in the chat. Help us out here. We want to get all the information to you that we possibly can. We will do our dead level best. I want to talk about why we're doing this. Because the bottom line is, guys, it's about results. The first two came in completely unasked for. My friends who did this in 2019, they were not working with us. They run a conventional broadcast program. In 2020, we met over the winter there of 19 to 20. And in 2020, they came to the Fundamentals of Agronomy program. They took a look at what we did and they went to row place nutrients. And this was the change in their yield map. And let's take a look at what happened in 21 and 22. As you can see in 21, we got darker. And I will tell you, there's, there's a reason that there's a left half and a right half on that. There was a little disagreement amongst the partners here. And I know the partners are on watching tonight and I'm not going to name any names, but let's just suffice it to say that we should always let the wife pick the hybrids and it'll work out better. That was the difference there in, in those two halves. But if you'll look between 20 and 21, it got more dark green. You got more uniformity between, yeah, there's, nine, there's 20, there's 21. Now look at 22 and those spots in there were where they had an irrigation problem. This is irrigated ground. And that was a situation that they had there. And I'm excited to jump to 23. Check this out. Guys, boom. That's what we're after. That deal at the lower end of the screen was where water wasn't getting clear through. That is an anomaly there based on a lack of water. But what we're looking at is that consistency, that dark green all the way out. You know, the best way to raise your average isn't necessarily to raise the top end and the good spots. But if we can take that yield curve and we can tighten it up, and we can bring those low numbers up 20 bushel to the acre on a lot of acres, which is what we've done, it makes a big difference. We learned a couple, three things, and they did call and tell me, say, hey, Rod, that yield is not right. That was off of the card. And actually across the scales, this farm made 269 bushel to the acre all the way across, including those spots down there in the bottom. So that's an outstanding yield with those kinds of you know dark green on there. So we learned three things. Number one, I'm working with these guys. I'm going to talk to them about resetting their parameters for the yield monitor next year. We're going to need to raise that up so we can turn some of this a little more of a yellow so we can see what we're striving for. Number two, we have found out that a complete soil test is worth its weight in green, not gold, in green. Because when we can turn our yield maps this dark green with this much uniformity, we can make some serious money. We also proved again that equal opportunity nutrition is the best way to take out variability. We firmly believe that it is a far better way to take that variability out. We're not here to, to, debate, to debate or to discuss or argue about grid sampling and variable rate spreading. All we're saying is take a look at what these guys did here. So before I launch off into this, we're gonna sit here for a little bit. And I've got some things that I wanna share with you before I start looking at these other tests. And it's funny because I'm preparing for this and, and let me put a plug in guys. If you don't follow us on our podcast, type in A Better Way to Farm on the podcast platform of your choice. We're going to be starting our series called The 12 Days of Nutrients, and we're going to take a look at all of the nutrients and what we can learn about them. 
And yes, we've done it for the last, I don't know, four years, I think, three, four, five years. And every year I throw my notes away because I want to re-prepare. And we always find out new things. We learn new things that help people make more money. And so this is a shameless plug, Better Way to Farm podcast. Take a look at those. And we're very excited to get to be starting on them. So I started doing some preparing for this month ago. The first things that come up was government publications. And they were talking about soil testing. I'm on an NRCS uh, page here. And they were talking about, do you have problems with nutrient deficiencies? Do you have poor plant growth? Do you have poor response from your applied fertilizer? Do you have weeds that are hard to kill? Are you getting low crop yield? Does your forage have low quality? Are you getting irregular plant growth? And they were talking about all these things. They went in and they said, here's the benefits of soil testing. You can determine the nutrient levels in your soil. You can check out your pH levels and see if you need lime. It is a decision-making tool to help apply nutrient, figure out what nutrients to apply. And it gives us a potential for higher quality and higher quantity. It also should help us with more efficient fertilizer utilization. This is where it kind of went off the rails, guys. We see a lot of this out here, a lot of people talking about, well, we only soil test every five years. Guys, soil tests are cheap and yield makes money. And when we're first starting down the path that we go, we encourage our guys, we need three years of testing. We don't want to wait 15 years. It takes three times to get a trend line. And so if we do it every five years, it takes us 15 years to get a trend line. We don't want to do that. We want it 36 months. Guys, most of us, if we're really lucky, we're going to get about 45 growing seasons. We don't want to waste 15 of them trying to figure out what to do. It is a good idea, if possible, the best time to pull a soil test is right now, October, November. The second best time is whenever you get it done. We prefer fall because it gives us time to prepare and time to react. And so consequently, we would encourage you guys. I know my good friend Tyler is on here and he's been testing like fury for a long time. And he's tested many thousands of acres for a lot of different people. When Tyler goes out to do this, he knows exactly what we're looking for. We are looking to come into these fields and we are not grid sampling because here's the deal. When we put starter fertilizer and the micros in that tank on that planter, and we start at the east end of the field, when we get to the west end, we're still going to be applying the exact same thing. So what do we do? We sample fields in 20, 40, 80 acre blocks, pretty good uniformity. Now, if we've got a weirdo anomaly, we're going to pull it out. A sand ridge, a wet corner, some piece, some 12 acres that we know yields terrible every year. We're going to test it separate. But overall, we're looking for a composite. So, and I, it's funny because I just talked to a guy tonight and he said that he has a collect and go bucket. People take a look at those and they say, wow, what are you talking about? Why are you doing that? And he said, it's faster to use a collect and go than it is his hydraulic probe. And he feels like he's getting a better test. So he takes the collect and go out. That's what Tyler's using. He pulls out on a 20 acre field, 15 to 20 cores as he gets to a 40 acre field, 30 to 40 cores. 80-acre field, probably 50, and we're going in great big figure eights because we're looking for that composite. We pull those out, we mix them really well, and then we fill that bag and we ship it in to Midwest Labs. As we start talking about why we do different tests, and this is really important because if you're going to learn how to read your test, you need to know the background on it first. And one of the big arguments that's out there is what is the best soil test option? What should we be doing? Should we be doing the Malik 3? Should we be doing the Bray P1, P2 test? Should we be using a bicarb test, an Olson bicarb test? 
And there's a lot of people that get really energetic around all of this. And the fact of the matter is, we do have a definite opinion, and we're going to talk about those different ones, because when you're looking at your test, it's important that you understand what extraction method was used so you can boil that down to make good decisions in what you're going to do. As far as testing for P1 for phosphorus, we prefer the Bray method, where you get a P1 and a P2 reading. And we prefer the Olson soil test. The Olson bicarb test is used once our soil pH crosses above seven. When we get above seven, four, really the Olson bicarb is far more accurate, far more accurate, even though that our lab will still run a, a Bray test as well. The, it, it's funny because in the publications, and I found several of them, the publications that I found all said the same thing. Always in the first paragraph, when they talk about the Malik 3 soil test, it says something to this effect. A single test is advantageous due to the lower cost of the soil testing and speeding up the analysis in the labs because they use fewer analytical procedures. However, there are no current guidelines for the use of the Malik 3 extraction solution in Minnesota. While the research is ongoing, there have been few issues noted that were based on the research. Guys, what are they saying? When we go to Midwest Labs and we run that Olson bicarb and or that Bray test for phosphorus, then we use an ammonium acetate test for the potassium. And then we use another DTPA test for all of the micronutrients. So they have to run three different tests on that soil. And the advantage of not doing that is it's faster and it's cheaper. But nowhere in here did I hear the word better. And in my estimation, I wasn't taking soil tests to be fast, and I wasn't taking soil tests to be cheap. I was taking soil tests to get really good information, and I can't begin to stress that enough. The quote on this one from this publication in Minnesota said, if you're interested in testing for phosphorus, remember that cheaper is not always the best option. Different extraction solutions will pull phosphorus out of different pools in the soil. Some will correlate well, and others will not. If you have no way to correlate that Malik test to the P1 or Olson test, there is a chance that it might not be the best thing to do. And as we compare these, again, the Malik 3, the advantage is they do it all in one shot. They test for phosphorus, they test for potassium, they test for all of your micronutrients. Through Midwest Labs, what do they do? Well, they're going to pull that gray test and or the bicarb. And then again, for those micronutrients, they're going to use that DTPA test to extract with. And they're going to use an ammonium acid to catch your cations like magnesium, potassium, calcium. We want to make sure that we're getting that right. And to give you some idea, as near as the correlation that we can find as a rough rule of thumb, the Malik 3 test is going to read about 30% higher than a Bray test. So what does that mean? That means to convert from one to the other, you have to, to do a little bit of math there. So if you had a Malik 3 and it was like, say, 60 parts per million, you'd want to knock 30% off of that. So you're actually looking at 42. We want to make sure that we're getting that right. We also are well convinced, and I've talked to two or three soil scientists about this, that the Malik 3 will always give you a higher CEC rating. And therefore, that is important because that means your cations need to have higher numbers on them. As we start looking at these things and, and studying why that is, it's important because if we can't make good decisions, if we don't know what we're doing. Potassium views coming off of the M3 method tend to be about 20% higher, sometimes 30. 
the magnesium levels are almost always 30% higher than using the ammonium acetate extraction. Again, there's all kinds of arguments here. And guys, I'm not here to have an argument. I'm just here to say what we work with and what is working for us. The other thing to consider is that a high soil pH, more manganese is hung onto in the soil particles and therefore it's held tightly and the plant availability decreases tremendously. As we continue to do this again, want to reiterate to convert from Bray to Malik, you would multiply the Bray by 1.35. If you wanted to go the other way, you would divide by 1.35. Doing the same thing in regards on uh, potassium to convert the Malik three, you would multiply by 1.15. That would be to go from the ammonium acetate test into that, you multiply by 1.15, otherwise you would divide. And so consequently, I just want to touch upon the fact that we are a huge fan. Now, that being said, we're going to get in here and we're going to talk about some of these readings and some of these tests. So we've got a test up here right now. We just went around and collected some tests. I didn't get everything that I wanted. My favorite soil test, and guys, I encourage you, when we get done here tonight, go pull your test. Go pull your test and look at them and see what you're getting and see how much information you get off of them. Our favorite is when we have a guy bring his soil test. We had a fundamentals of agronomy this summer and a guy brought his soil test to us and he handed them and he said, well, what do you learn from these? And I just smiled at him because it wasn't even a test. It was a loadout sheet. It literally said you needed 150 pounds of 1846.0 and you needed a hundred or excuse me, 200 pounds of 0060. That was it. There was no information. There was no context. There wasn't anything. And when he got done with the two-day training, he figured out what he needed was a new consultant. And as we're looking at this right here, we want to know what is the type of test? We're looking at this and we want to know, did they do this as a, is this the done with the Malik 3? Was this done with the Bray method and the ammonium acetate and the DPTA? Because it doesn't tell us. And therefore we would know that if we were doing it with the Malik 3, the, the levels would be much higher. We actually looked at a test in Wisconsin and Malik 3 pulls a very, very artificially, it, it basically pulls every form of manganese out of the soil. In regards to the micronutrient manganese, if you're using that M3, all of a sudden you're going to have numbers that are off the chart. And when that happens, he came back and said 400 parts per million. And I can assure you that at 400 parts per million, we would be suffering from a whole bunch of way too much manganese and possibly it would be toxic and we couldn't even grow anything we consider a high level of manganese to be over 30 parts per million. This test here, you'll notice that they took a look. They got phosphorus, they got potassium, they got calcium and magnesium, and those are good. We do need to know those. They did give us the, the CEC and the organic matter. And guys, these are all things that I'm going to look at right off the bat. In the top part there, your P and your K, your calcium and your mag are right there. Your pH is listed. Uh, they, they are trying to say, hey, here's what you need to do. You'd like to be at 7.0. They've got that CEC of 3.4 and an organic matter of 1.4. This is a very, very, very light soil. Now, the good news is this was headed for clover. I don't know if it was a cover crop or they were growing hay. And it's not important what was on here. It's only important that we know how to read it, how to look at it. And these are the things that we're going to look at. The thing that is disturbing is there's not a micronutrient to be said on here, not one. They don't show you anything that you might need in the way of other nutrients. And that's 
One of the things that we're going to look at on a test, if you don't have it, then you can make a decision about NP and K. If you have pH and calcium, you can make a decision about calcium. But we find the lion's share of soil tests in the United States today are geared towards one thing, selling P and K. And I love how all of the analytical work is about 25% of the page. The recommendation section takes up about half the page. And then there's some footnotes. And so as we take a look at this, I just think this tells us, what are we looking at? They're putting the emphasis on what you're going to buy. And as we look at this next slide here in this set, we've come in here with someone who is grid sampled. Again, we're not picking on anybody. We're not picking on any labs. We're not doing any of that. We're just going to talk about it. And we get tons of people, tons of people who come to us and they bring us books, literally three inch, three ring binders. They've got all the cool maps. They've got all these things that they've got it that are got, they have gridded. And this particular one here, they did a summary and I just pulled one sheet out of the book. They did give you the averages. Average on phosphorus was 28.2, 28.6. Average on K, 195. Average pH, 6.4. And, you know, you, you take a look at those things, and those are good. We're grateful for that. But the, the flip side of it is that we don't have micronutrients. I will say this, guys, the one time that we are really in favor of grid sampling is if you're studying calcium and pH. That is one place where it pays its way very well. We would run the cheap $9 test, get those grids and spread that way. On this particular test, again, the good news is you'll notice that it's listed right there. It's in parts per million. And I wanted to talk about that because we see soil tests that come in and they have a rating, a value, or a number, but you don't know if it's in pounds or if it's in parts per million. Why is that relevant? Well, Parts per million, when you convert it to pounds, you multiply by two. If you're converting pounds back to parts per million, you divide by two. Either one of those is okay, as long as you know what you're looking at. But you got to make a good decision, and you have to have great data in order to know what you're supposed to do. The question that we have is, what is the cost of gridding versus the usable information? Cost of gridding on calcium? Probably. Absolutely. Get after it. In regards to these other nutrients, we're not convinced because we didn't get those slides, those five pictures from 19 through 23 by doing grids. We got those by doing equal opportunity nutrition all through the field. As we jump to this next slide, we start taking a look at it. It's yet another test. Here we are, and they are in pounds per acre, so we can appreciate that very much, knowing what it is. And since it's in pounds per acre, we would divide that by two to get the accurate phosphorus and the accurate potassium in parts per million. We are grateful that they did that. We've noticed that they came down through here and they did an Olson test. As we start looking at that, you know, obviously this must have had a high pH, although I'm not seeing that on here. And one, guys, one of the things that happens in a high pH soil, so as we get into those higher pH soils, we do find that that phosphorus becomes tied up by all that extra calcium. That is not uncommon. Then you move on down, they went into some of the other things. They, they put some of these in pounds and some of them in parts per million, which is interesting. And if you must, you have to convert these back to make sure we're getting adequate readings. The CEC, guys, is really, really, really important. We have to know what that is. This is 23.4, as you can see there. If you go to the lower right corner of the graph, they're showing you that your CEC. And that's one we look at the CEC. And we look at the organic matter, 
Why? Because those two things tell us if we can safely row apply or not. If your organic matter is two and your CEC is 10, you can go in the furrow. If it's one in five, it's not safe to go on the seed. Now it could be 1.8 and 12. There's a floating chart. And if you're interested in seeing that chart, you reach out to us and we'll see to it that you get that chart that shows you, okay, well, maybe I don't have, you know, maybe I don't have a CEC of 10. I've only got eight, but I've got organic matter that's at three. Will that work? We absolutely can provide that chart for you and make life a whole lot better. I find it interesting that they tested for the micronutrients, but they didn't do anything about it. They made a recommendation for zinc, but they did not do anything on the rest of these. And as we take a look at that, that was probably not the best thing in the world. I particularly would be nervous about that copper. And I am looking to see if they even did a boron test. And I'm not seeing that. And guys, I can tell you this, 95% of America is deficient in boron. And so the thing that we're looking at here is, yes, guys, what are you going to do? You're going to say, all right, here's my phosphorus levels. Here's my potassium levels. Here's my CEC and my organic matter. We know what we can do as far as being seed safe. And they've made good recommendations for a dry broadcast program. And we're all for that. And actually, these guys were having them bandit, which puts them way out in, in front of most. And I'm happy to see that too. We know that banding is about three times more efficient. And then we start looking at some of these things that they're broadcasting, probably not so much. So let's jump here and look at this next slide. Again, this is out of a book, a different book. We get lots of these sent to us and we were looking through it. This is a manganese test. And guys, I want to reiterate, I want you to understand that when you get a test, you have to know if it is malic 3 or Bray testing, ammonium acetate testing, and DPTA. Why? Because if the extraction method was an M3, the manganese reading is off the charts high and very false. I'm relatively certain this is not a malic 3 because of the manganese levels that they have here. And guys, one of the things that I'll tell you, I don't have all these numbers memorized and I don't expect you to either. Let me make a suggestion. Go to Midwest Labs and print off, it's a two-page paper. It's called the Table of Ratings, the Table of Ratings. And I'm going to come back and talk to about that here just in a little bit. But that Table of Ratings is important. And we know from that Table of Ratings that the manganese, we need to get up to 9 to 12 to be in the medium. And we know that getting between 13 and 30 puts us in the high, high side. Very rarely do we see that. This is not an uncommon manganese level here that we see in this field. And this one was actually pretty consistent. It was just low everywhere. So let's take a look at what we have next. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at a phosphorus test. And the reason that I had that was because we see this, especially some of the guys who have uh, really lots and lots of manure, have used lots of manure for years, are still using lots of manure. Guys, here's the deal. The sweet spot for phosphorus when you're looking at your test, you're reading your test, is somewhere between 25 and 35 parts per million. I was talking to one of the reps from Midwest Labs today, and we were talking about how critical it is that once our phosphorus level gets above, the P1 gets above 25, we create, we induce a zinc deficiency. So we're looking at a test here. It's not, you know... It's fairly consistent, but I mean, we're talking about all very ultra high numbers, ultra high numbers. And so what should the recommendation be? It should be stop it. And I dare say that some people, we looked at some tests last year, again, up in Wisconsin, and they had tests in there 
where they had 85 to 100 parts per million and the retailer was recommending a removal rate. You know, and they can sell us on that. The removal rate's a good theory on how to put it back. But the fact of the matter is, when we have over 100 parts per million of, of phosphorus, we need a removal. Like, you probably need to remove it for yourself and your kids and then your grandkids before they ever think about putting it on. Why? Because we have it so high that we are punishing ourselves. And so this field right here, without even looking at the zinc levels, we know that it's ultra deficient. And those are the things that are going to hurt us. So here is one of our tests. And I'm going to spend some time here, guys, because what I'm going to want you to do is I know that there are different tests out there. And I know a lot of you guys are using different tests. Number one, I want to talk about why I would encourage you to use this one. Number two, I want you to work off of this and go look at your test and say, fine, let's see what we can learn. So what, as I look at this test, here's the order that I set down. When someone comes to me, Tyler pulls a test for one of our guys. I get a copy of it online. The first two things I look at are organic matter and CEC. Organic matter in the top left, CEC in the lower left. Why? Because by knowing this is a 1.9 organic matter and 11.6 CEC, the first thing I know is I can row place starter with micronutrients. The second thing I'm going to look at is that pH. And this particular individual has got a pH of 5.8. And guys, you can buy all the fertilizer in the world, but the reason you look at pH next is because the first dollar that you need to spend sometimes is on calcium. Now, I promised you we were going to talk about why it is pH may not show you the whole package on calcium. I'm also going to talk about why calcium may not be the whole answer to pH. I had an individual call just today, and he said, well, last year I had a pH of 5.8. My retailer convinced me to go with, and I have high magnesium. So he had really ultra high magnesium, like this guy here, like this test. He had a low pH, like this guy here. And they convinced him, they, they knew how much he needed to put on of that SuperCal 98 product, but they did a half rate. And I'm not sure why they did that, but they did a half rate. And I said, so tell me what happened. He was very discouraged. And he said, well, my calcium level went up and my magnesium level went down, but my pH is still exactly 5.8. Why is that? Guys, where I live, we have high maglime. And the deal is both magnesium and magnesium and calcium will raise pH. So as he applied calcium to his field, it drove the magnesium off the soil colloid. And so what happened? It was a zero-sum game for moving his pH. And I suggested to him that he's going to have to put on a gob of calcium because he's going to drive that magnesium off first before he can ever start addressing that pH situation. And so we're going to go back and take a look at maybe putting on the full dose that they said last year and then monitor it. And guys, let me say this. I have pH on here second for a reason. As you read your soil test and you sit down and you study your soil test, we want you looking at these and saying, first things first, pH first, because you can let your pH slide first at six, eight, right where we want it. Then it's six, five, and then it's six, two and we don't do anything, and then we wake up and it's 5.9, and we rode the yield curve down over a period of a few years. And the problem with it is, no different than my friend, we dump on a bunch of lime, and we don't get it to, it doesn't jump straight back up to 6.8, especially depending on the calcium amount in the lime, judge, dependent upon how fine the grind is. There are a lot of different factors in there 
on how fast we bring that pH back, but it's going to be a slower process. It's not going to be 12 months. And so we ride that down. And that's why pH is the second thing that I'm looking at. And maybe it should be the first. I don't know. But I, I just know that it's more important than about anything else that we're going to do because nothing else is going to work. So when you pull your test out, I will take a pin on a test. If it's not one of our tests from Midwest, I'll take whatever test I get a hold of and I will start circling these things that I'm looking for. I'll circle organic matter and CC. I'll circle that pH. And we probably will stop right there and have a conversation if it's not what it needs to be. The next thing that I'm going to look at is that base saturation rate. And we know that we would really like to see that magnesium considerably higher than that. I'd love for it to be four or 5%. We know that magnesium, if we can keep it between 12 and 18%, then that is good because the soil isn't going to get tight. Once we cross 18%, you can start banking on some pretty serious compaction coming in. And if you get up into that 25 or 30 that we see, unfortunately, way too often, that soil is tight. It's really, really, really tight. Calcium, we're going to want to see that, you know, I would like to see it up around 75, 70 at least. And we would like that hydrogen to be basically non-existent because that hydrogen is what's creating that low pH. And as we apply the limes, we apply the calcium, we drive that hydrogen off and the pH goes up. Guys, in regards to fixing pH, as you're looking at your soil test, the question you have to be saying in conjunction with pH is how's my magnesium? Because if my magnesium is ultra high, that's the next thing you want to look at. This particular test, this guy's got more magnesium than he can shake a stick at. So he has to buy calcitic lime. If we buy high mag lime, will it raise pH? Yes. Is it what we need? Absolutely not. Because what are we going to do? We're going to jack that base saturation on magnesium up. We're going to increase the tightness of our soil. And we're not going to be getting the response that we want. So we need calcitic lime. But SuperCal 98G out of Fort Dodge is a great product. And for those of you that live in Iowa, it's worth hauling. Now, some of you who are farther away, you may have to go to a, a quarry and find one that does sell the right kind of lime for you, whether it be dolomatic or calcitic. As we look at those base saturations, again, they just give us a guideline. They give us a direction. The next thing that I'm looking at is I'm going to look at that ratio of P1 to P2. What does that tell me? Well, as long as my pH is under 7, and I can get that ratio to be one to two, things are working pretty well. And we see this ratio, sometimes it's, you might have a P1 of 23 and a P2 of 24. What does that mean? It means that the readily available phosphorus is 23 parts per million, and the part that's going to become readily available is only 24, so it's just one more in there. And what that typically means is we've got some things not working right in that soil. That ratio should be there. Now, let me say this. If your pH, another good reason I have to look at pH, some of the guys up there, especially when we get into the Dakotas, we get out into western Nebraska, we start fighting a lot of high pH. We see 7.4, 7.8, 8.2. And the higher that pH gets, the bigger the spread between P1 and P2 phosphorus. So when you're reading your soil test, it is critical that you understand these relationships and that we understand when we have a high pH, the spread between P1 and P2 is going to get bigger and bigger. It is not uncommon with a pH of 8 to have a P1 of 7 and a P2 of 100. We see it over and over again. Why is that? It's because the calcium is hanging on to the phosphorus. And the thing that happens is a lot of people in the industry will come to you and say, you need to spread a lot of product. Looky here. Looky here. 
you've got only seven parts per million P1 and 100 parts per million P2, you got to put a bunch on there. And the problem is, as soon as you spread it, your P1 stays at seven and your P2 goes up because it gets cabbaged onto almost immediately. How do you farm around that high pH? Row place starter. Row place starter because that phosphorus that's in a hot mix fertilizer in the orthophosphate form is in that seed trench and goes directly into that plant and you circumvent this problem. And here's the good news for you boys with high pH. And I should be saying boys and girls, I know there's several women on here and I love women in agriculture, as you guys well know, with the daughters that we have and the women that are on our team doing a great job. So guys is a generic term, it just means people. But as you put this out there and that row place starter gets that plant going up through about the eighth leaf stage, and then your soil warms up and that P2 starts to become P1. It starts to become more readily available. And so the good news is once it warms up, you're in better shape. Another ratio, first of all, we look at the K level and obviously this individual needs some K and I'm going to invite you. I'm not going to go on a tirade here. I could talk for an hour about what I think about using potassium chloride, but I'm going to just say this. Hey guys, why don't we go ahead and do this? Let's go to the podcast. Let's get on there where Dr. Mulvaney talked about the potassium paradox and figure out what the right thing to do is on potassium and how does applying more potassium chloride affect our soil and affect our available potassium. But the thing we really want to look at, we really want to look at this ratio. I'm going to come back to K to mag. That's the one I want to look at the most, but I want to talk about a couple of others because there are the ratios out there and they are talked about. This one I'm going to do in a bit is not talked about by the industry much. I'm just starting to hear a little bit about it. Obviously, a lot of people get to talking about the phosphorus to the zinc ratio, and ideally, they're talking about it being 10 to 1. I'm not really disagreeing with that, but suffice it to say, if you've got really high phosphorus levels, building your zinc levels is probably going to be, at best, not cost-effective, and at worst, not even humanly possible especially for the guy who's messed around and let his P1 get up to 85 or some outrageous number like that. You know, once we get a, a zinc level to six, we're considered very, very, very high. And so while that ratio is important, the best way to handle that ratio of P1 to zinc is to handle that if we get above a P1 to 25, we just know we're going to add zinc into the fertilizer. The next one that people talk about that we get to interested in is manganese to iron. And because oftentimes these things will be at the expense of the other. For instance, if you have a lot of manganese and not very much iron, you'll have trouble getting the iron in there because the manganese overwhelms it. Where I live is a whole lot like this person here. This guy's manganese levels, while they should be, for every part manganese, we should have one part, we should have about 1.5 parts iron. This guy, for every pint part manganese that he has, he has over 10 parts iron. What does that mean? That means even though his manganese level is high, he has to add manganese in the trench to get adequate manganese into the plant because the iron is going to overwhelm it and not let it get in there. And so sometimes things are counterintuitive. Sometimes we apply something that we already have a lot of in order to fix it. And that brings me to the next ratio that I want to talk about. And it's the first one that I look at, and that is potassium to magnesium, K to mag. Well, what are we looking for ideal? Because some of you guys are saying, okay, what's perfect? Well, perfect would be three parts magnesium for every one part potassium. In other words, if I have 100 parts per million on potassium 
I need 300 parts per million on magnesium. And guys, this ratio can be all over the board. It's okay to be up to five times. We could have 100 parts potassium times five would be 500 parts. This one right here, where are we at? We're about three. This ratio here is actually very good between potassium and magnesium. He's just low on, on potassium. He needs to add some. That ratio is really important. What happens like in my own farm where I've got 10 times the amount of magnesium that I have potassium, I have to use a high K starter. That's why we use a 315-19-3. Our starter on this farm is 19% potassium because that's what it takes to circumvent that because that mag is overwhelming that potassium and won't let it in the plant. So we're going to take a look at that and make sure that we've got that where we want it. The thing that probably bothers me more, and this is something that we figured out many years ago. You guys, a lot of you on here know I get the honor of getting to work with Jerry Cox. He's a 25-time NCGA champion in the corn growing contest. They're, Jerry and Jane are great friends of ours. I appreciate them so much. And Jerry and I have learned a lot of things together. Hopefully, I've helped him a little bit. I know he's helped me a lot. But one of the things that we figured out was that my mentor, Denny, and I had been working on and studying and believing there was a relationship, and sometimes potassium can be too high. See, that's the weird thing about this ratio, guys, why you need to look at this ratio. Because if potassium is greater than magnesium, now all of a sudden the magnesium can't get in. And so even though you may have high mag soils, you're going to have to add magnesium. Jerry called me. I was driving down the road. He said, hey, I got a cornfield that's in trouble here. I pulled over and I said, Jerry, tell me about it. And he said, well, he said, was looking at this field the other day. It's got this intervenal striping. And he said, I've had three different agronomists out, good agronomists. And he said, one of them said I was K deficient. One of them said I was nitrogen deficient. You know, we see yellow instantaneously. we got to start selling nitrogen, right? And the fact of the matter was with that intervenal striping, like what it was, and it was potassium, guys, that deficiency is going to be yellow strips around the edge. It's going to look like you burnt it. And I was like, Jerry, I think that that's a magnesium deficiency. And he said, well, my mag levels are really high. I said, I understand that, but it's important to know the ratio. Please look at your soil test and tell me, and he said, by golly, you're right. He said, I have two times, almost twice as much potassium as I do magnesium. So Jerry, I said, I want you to confirm this with a tissue test. But he went ahead and full air fed the magnesium. Then he pulled the tissue test and sent them in and it came back. It was, in fact, a magnesium deficiency. And he said just in a couple of days after he full air fed that magnesium, that corn come right out of it. Guys, that's a ratio that we look at. We write on them and we know from the, from the get-go. Let me say this. On our test, page one is this. This is your analytical results that we're going to talk through. Please notice on the right side, you get recommendations for a dry broadcast program. This is coming to you and saying, hey, we're not going to use your products, Rod. We're going to go with the same old deal, and we're going to just do a dry blow and go. And that's fine. We're not going to hold you hostage at all. We're going to say go in peace, and, and I hope it works for you. We do give you a second page that shows you all the recommendations for our system, shows you exactly which starter, how much starter. And we would be able to get in there and get after that from that standpoint. It tells you how much of each micronutrient and how it needs to be applied. Can we put this all row place? Do we have to do some row place, some foliar, some row place, some two by two? It's going to tell us all those things. 
And so I'm very excited. This is one of the reasons, guys, that I really push this Midwest test is because no matter what you're going to do, you get the data. So when you get your test up, guys, what do you need to look for? Organic matter and CEC, the pH and the base saturation, the ratio of P1 to P2. You need to look and see, was this a malic 3 extraction or was this a Bray test? And if it was a malic 3, then we know that we're going to have some really interesting levels, especially in our micronutrients and especially, especially in manganese. And the fact that we have a high mag level, if it's not extractable by the plant, it does us no good. If we don't have good manganese in there, it's going to hurt us. The last thing that I look at, and sometimes I can't help myself, I actually go circle it for first, is the boron levels. This test right here was 0.4. Preston texted me, I missed it on that one test. There was a boron level on there. And guess what? It was 0 0.42, 0 0.4 also. And so consequently, what do we know? We know that a boron test of 0.8 or less means you're suffering for a lack of boron. And boron's super important, guys. It's bloom, it's pollen, it's silt, it's reproduction. It's also nitrogen utilization. And as an added bonus, boron being adequate feeds the mycorrhiza bacteria, which makes your phosphorus go into the plant better. And so there's a lot of reasons to look at all of these things. Guys, as you look at your test, I want you to, I don't know if you can screenshot this. I would highly recommend that you screenshot this page because what this will do is it'll give you those things to go look at. When Whoever you're getting your test from, you're going to look at these things. And when you look at these things, and if they're in Malik 3, then you're going to convert them back as best you can to a brain method and figure out what you're going to do. But guys, oftentimes soil tests are taken with one, one thing in mind. How do I sell you more dry fertilizer? How do I sell you more 184060? How do I sell you more 0060? And that's all we're going to focus on because that's all we're worried about because that's what we're going to sell. Guys, I'm not worried about what you buy. I'm not, we're doing this and some of you we're never going to talk to. What am I worried about? The old adage that says everything that happens in agriculture is good for somebody. The question is who? Tonight, guys, we have one goal. That is, this session is good for you. We're going to talk about how you can reach out and work with us, and that's great. And if it doesn't make any difference whether you do or you don't. I hope that as a result of being on this webinar, that you have come out here and you've said, I've got lists of questions that I want to ask my agronomist. I want to ask my retailer. And guys, I want to say this. When you start asking why and they get mad or they tell you you shouldn't do that or they don't want to answer it, that's a giant red flag. This is your money. This is your future. This right here, this information can determine whether or not your grandkids get to farm or they have to take a job in town. And we want to make sure we're getting the best information. That's the goal tonight is that we learn how to extract the information from the soil test and put it to use. And I hope, as said, screenshot this particular page. Go look at these things. Go get the table of ratings from Midwest Labs. One other point that I want to make that none of the other tests took into account was they didn't take into account how does the CEC affect particularly my potassium levels. Guys, phosphorus, it's cut and dried. It doesn't matter what your CEC is. If you're 15 to 21, you're medium. If you're 22 to 30, you're high. If you're over 30, you're very high. Say that again. If you're over 30, you're very high. Because we've got people out here with 50s and 60s P1 phosphorus being told they need to put on a removal rate 
or a 2x removal rate. Who's that good for? The farmer or the retailer? And I'm not getting on the retailers because most of those guys are just doing what they've been told. Les Brown says if they knew better, they do better. I'm hoping that they start to know better and they can do better. However, the thing that's really disturbing is the fact that CEC impacts what your level of potassium should be. For instance, our farm has a CEC of about 10. What does that mean? That means when I get to 130 parts per million of potassium, I'm considered high. If my CEC was 30 and I had a 130 parts per million of potassium, I would be considered low. And most people are trying to get to the high and pretending that they have a CEC of 30. Guys, here's the deal. Go get the table of ratings. I'm not going to read this off. You won't be able to write it down. Anyway. Just go get the table of ratings. You can download it for free and print it off because it's going to help you figure out where you need to have for a K level so that you can judiciously spend your money. As we close this out, this next page, we just want you to know that if you would like to work with us, if you've got value from this and you would like to work with us to maximize your results in 2024, here's how to do it. I want you to know that if someone from our team invited you to this, please reach out to them. Reach out back to them and let them know you want to get started. As we jump ahead here, guys, we just want to tell you we appreciate you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Reach out to the person who asked you to join this. Go to them. Let them help you. I'll be at these trainings that are coming up, most of them. I look really forward to meeting you there. And I really look forward to you working with a person that thought enough of you to say, hey, give this a go. And we will attempt to get to every one of the questions. We've won an hour, and that's our goal. We're going to shut this off. But someone will be in touch to answer your questions. Guys, I hope harvest is either over and it was great or you're getting close and you're being safe. Let's wrap this up, but let's give 2024 the best start we can. And that best start starts with a soil test that we pull this year that gives us the recommendations that we need, the information that we need to make good decisions. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.